Welcome back to another episode of the Professional Profiles Podcast, where I interview industry experts to understand their jobs, learn about their journeys to success, and uncover the strategies they've used to find it. Today, we have a special guest who's making waves in the entrepreneurial world. As a co-founder of Funded House, he is more than qualified to share his insights on growth, strategies, and success. He is also part of Team CMO, a pioneering talent agency committed to helping CMOs succeed. As a mentor at MediaTek Ventures, he also supports artists, developers, and entrepreneurs in the media and technology industry. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Mr. Elijah May. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start with your journey. You've had an incredible background, an incredible start that you've talked about before. And I'd love for you to tell that story. So I went to USC because I grew up in the woods in North Carolina and I wanted to get out of the woods. And so I went to Los Angeles, went to USC, and then the school hired me one week out of school to be the liaison between the university and the studios. So for eight years, I was working on the biggest television shows, film productions, commercials in the world. And that's a pretty crazy reality switch from where I started, right? So four years removed. And I got to be the liaison to the Secret Service in 2002. I got to do a lot of really incredible things. And then when you know, I got married to uh, a woman I was a lifeguard with at USC, and uh, we had a kid, we decided that we wanted to find somewhere that was a little bit more, less urban than LA to raise kids. So we picked Austin, and we've been here ever since. We moved here in 2006. And... What I found was I worked on a show called Friday Night Lights, which most everybody knows, but the show was at the end of the season. And as the show was wrapping up, there was this realization. I moved out here thinking that they have a lot of production here in Austin, and I found out that that's not entirely true. So it turned out Friday Night Lights was the only show at the time, and when the show went into hiatus, which is basically between seasons of the show, they didn't even know if there was going to be another season, and I realized that I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. So I was trying to figure out what to do next with the skills that I had, which were almost entirely working in the film industry that doesn't exist here. And I coordinated, helped to coordinate a golf tournament for a cast and crew of the show. One of the CEOs said, hey, did you used to work in the PR department at USC? And I said, technically, yes. So he hired me to run his PR and marketing for a startup here in Austin. And that's how I kind of fell backwards into the entrepreneur world in Austin. So could you just describe your realm of expertise, like what you do and and why you do it now? About 2007, I take this job running PR marketing for a startup here in Austin with a massive budget. We're spending a fortune on marketing just in this market. Everything you can buy, radio, TV, print ads, all of it. And, And it was not working. None of it was working. And I didn't have a lot of marketing experience. My PR experience was really limited to the entertainment industry. And even then was a very specific subset. But I was really curious and I really wanted to understand why having all that money didn't work. It was supposed to work. Every media rep told us, if you do these things, you're going to get the business. We weren't getting the business. So I started trying to, not trying, I started researching what is the most effective form of marketing. And something surprising happened, which is that every single source, like everybody I asked, every source on the internet, like no one disagreed. Everybody agreed that word of mouth is the most effective form of marketing. Everybody. And yet nobody seems to invest in it. Like that just didn't make any sense. And so there was a guy who was literally had just was writing the book word of mouth marketing. He was here in Austin of all places. Right. And so I started just trying to understand what is word of mouth? How do you get it? Um, and 
and why don't people invest in it? And that's what I spent really, if you were going to distill it down to one thing, that's what I've spent the last 15 years doing. Um, last 50. Yeah. And I've done a lot of things in that journey. I went to work for a big shot advertising agency downtown. Really, really hated that. I've, I've consulted with some of the biggest brands in the world, designed campaigns for Alienware. And I was a creative director on Reddit and Twitch, worked on T-Mobile. My partner and I designed, this was the most successful digital campaign in the history of Bud Light. So I've been doing a lot of interviews about Bud Light lately. It's been a really interesting journey, but the thing that I'm really the most focused on is understanding like, okay, if word of mouth is what we all know works and nobody argues that, well, that's not true. People who specifically sell pay-per-click marketing argue that, but everybody else accepts that it's true. And then uh, we try to figure out how we're going to help them get it done. So could you briefly go into what strategies you can employ to use word of mouth marketing? Yeah. So you know what's baffling about it is this like shockingly easy. Right? So when people say, I don't know how to get word of mouth, I generally reply, like, you really have no idea how to be nicer to people. Like you have no idea how to do something fun. Like these are things that are so easy that people think that it can't be that simple. Right? So you're looking at CRMs and you're looking at loyalty program, working with luxury car brand. And they're so obsessed with, they're willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars a month for billboards, but they won't do anything for their customers when they buy a car that would make them want to come back. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? They're like, well, we don't have any money for that. Like, we'll stop spending money on the stupid billboard, right? Because people aren't coming in here because of the billboard, but they are definitely coming in here because their friend told them to come in here because you'll be good to them, right? And so earning that reputation, everybody wants a five-star reputation. And we say, and we mean, we'll show you how to earn that. So how important is networking, not even in entrepreneurship, but just in general? How crucial is, of a skill is that to have? I want to be fair to people. I, I, people who are introverts really freak out about this. But the truth is it's, it's massive, right? I mean, you know, this whole thing, it's particularly true in Los Angeles or right? in Hollywood, but it's not what you know. It's who you know. And I will tell you, quite frankly, like the number of unqualified people that I've worked with and quite frankly, the jobs that I've gotten that I've been unqualified for have 100% come from someone told, said something good about me or someone said something good about so-and-so and then they got the job. And so your ability to go out and build those relationships, and it's not always, sometimes it's a terrible thing. I mean, we all, we've all worked with somebody, people like me and Paul, we've all worked with somebody who's should not be where they are. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Like everybody knows they're not particularly good at the job, but they're really good at what we call managing up, right? Which is, managing your boss as opposed to managing the team of people that work for you and who and those relationships when you are hanging out with people when you go to the lake on the weekend when you go on trips together all of these things this is how the biggest opportunities in life are likely to come your way right so networking is critical there are ways to do it that aren't absolutely excruciating if that's not your thing but it's going to be it's going to be probably one of the most important things you're going to do in life. And so the fact that you're doing this, like I said, you're already way ahead of the curve. Indeed has a massive, I can say this because they said it on our show, right? They had a billion dollar marketing budget, which I can't even wrap my head around. Like, I don't know anybody in marketing who can wrap their head around spending a billion dollars in a year in market. And that would make you think that indeed a company that helps people get jobs, like how many people do you think get their jobs online? 
50, 60? The last official word I heard is this 20%. Now, I think that you're right. I think it's probably getting closer to 50% because now it's your default, right? Your default is to go and fill out the online thing and it will... But the problem is that everybody does that. And so it just sort of like blasts all these companies and it's all just matching on keywords. Literally right before we got on this call, I'm listening to a podcast by the founders of Brave New Work and they're interviewing a woman who created a company that specifically eliminate that piece of the equation. They literally are trying to eliminate resumes entirely because that has nothing to do. Like a resume with people are so worried about building and getting out there is like 10% indication of your job performance. And so we tend to default to if Paul tells me, this kid, Charlie's really good at something. You should hire him to do X. I'm like, all right, I don't, I don't need to see or hear anything. I just go, okay, if Paul says so, and we work together and I trust him, that means I trust you. And so all of this comes down to a trust index. And so a book that's not easy to read, but it's definitely an important book. It's called Speed of Trust by Stephen M. R. Covey. And he said, if someone needs what you do and they've never hired you to do it, it means that they don't trust you. Or at least they trust somebody else more. And if they don't trust you, there's two reasons why people do or don't trust somebody. One is character, and the other is competence, right? So probably you trust your parents a lot. You wouldn't necessarily trust them to take out your appendix, okay? Because that's not a competence to it. I'm assuming you're neither of your parents are surgeons. That's probably not a competence that they have. So on the flip side of that, if there's a surgeon that I find out is is the most talented surgeon in the world, but also he's a drug dealer. No way, dude. Right? Like, so character and competence are really the two factors in trust. And those are the two things that you get when you get a word of mouth referral is it comes with that trust. I assume your character is good. I assume your competence is good. Because so-and-so told me. Indeed can't do that. Are there any practical steps one can take to be better at networking or to grow their relationships with others? Yeah. So I asked all my networks a few years ago because I'd read so many books or listened to so many books. What's the best business book you've ever read? And the answer really surprised me because what they told me was um, the, the number one answer was a book by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People which is already the old book, like a really old book. And I'm like, all right, like this is going to be painful. It's still true. And so Dale Carnegie said in that book, and it's, you're nodding, so maybe you've read it, asking questions. Don't talk about yourself. Mary, unless you are famous or you have wrestled mountain goats on, on Mount Everest, right? Like people generally don't want to hear about you. But they definitely want to talk about themselves. And so ask as many questions. And what you're doing now is incredibly good practice. I found in my job working in the, in the entertainment industry. So there's this thing. Everyone who lives and works around Hollywood generally hates the industry. They hate the entertainment industry because it's so full of itself. And, and they do tend to like ruin your lawn and like break stuff and like just be like oh sorry like they don't even apologize they just leave they're like we're making a movie it's not not our problem so what i had to do was to try to like manage and stop people in the entertainment business and if anybody who's in the business here's this i'm sorry from breaking things and convince people that we're going to work with them for about a week at the university we're going to work with them and i'm not going to let them break anything 
when their assumption is, I don't, I already don't trust those people. I've seen big parts of trucks everywhere. They tell everybody what to do. They wouldn't let me get the work on time, right? And so what I would have to do is build that trust in me and then transfer that trust to whatever entertainment company it was for a few days. When I couldn't get it done, when I was, I remember one specific case where I'm talking to this woman who's in charge of an entire housing complex, right? So if you get any college, you're going to see, you know, dorms, both on campus and off campus housing. She manages a massive housing complex. And she's like, I'm not working with those people. That's what she's I'm not working with those people. I don't trust them. I don't want anything to do with them. And I said, yeah, I totally understand that because I've been working with them for a while. And like, it, it can be a real mess. And, and then I said, oh my gosh, are those your, are those your grandkids? She had a picture of these adorable kids on a beach somewhere. And she's like, oh my God. Yeah. And so she starts telling me about her grandkids. She starts telling me about like this trip. She starts telling me about like all the places they've taken their grandkids and like how much they love their grandkids and how they got new grandkids on the way. And you know, how she likes her son-in-law. He's not the best, but like she's telling me her whole life story. I left there about two and a half hours later. She doesn't even know my last name. I had walked in and said, hi, I'm Elijah. Work in this department. This is what I'm trying to do. And she goes, you know what? Hey, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to give you the keys. I trust you. I know I can trust you. After you said, I know I can trust you. I told her nothing about myself. I just let her talk for two and a half hours. And that is when I read Dale Carnegie's book. I'm like, yep, that's 100% so true. So on that same note, you mentioned success. What is your definition of success? I was pretty convinced by Tony Shea, and I think that I've that's really informed my worldview ever since. My definition of success is, is purpose, right? So is if you're asking me what purpose specifically, I'm increasingly interested in system design, right? So there's a great book. So probably the best authors I can think of are Dan and Chip Heath. They wrote Made to Stick. They wrote, wrote The Power of Moments. And then Dan Heath wrote a book called Upstream Thinking. And Upstream Thinking kind of opens with sort of an allegory, which is if you and a friend are standing next to a river and a kid comes floating down the river and you jump in and pull him out, and then a kid comes floating down the river and you jump in and throw him out, and a kid comes floating down the river and you jump in and pull him out, and your buddy takes off, you're like, where are you going, man? He's like, I'm going to figure out who's throwing all these kids in the river, right? Upstream Thinking is figuring out if... If we've got a problem that keeps happening, let's go figure out where the problem's starting. Like if we can stop the problem, right? Like if I've got, I've got a leak in the house, right? Like I can only bail water so fast. At some point, I got to go fix that broken pipe. And so, like that is probably the single most interesting thing to me is figuring out how we how we fix, identify broken systems and and fix them. Like leaking pipe is an easy to identify broken system, but people with that healthcare is a much more complicated broken system, but it's the same principles. So I'd love to shift to your work as a mentor and professor. So as a mentor at Media Tech Ventures, what is the most common obstacle that you see faced by artists, developers, and entrepreneurs? And how do you guide them through this challenge? Deciding what you want to be makes it sound more existential, right? So deciding what you want to do. The other thing is people think that if I pick this, then I won't get to be all the things I want to be, do all the things I want to do. And that is not true, right? We know plenty of famous singers who've gotten to act because now they're famous, right? 
We know plenty of famous actors who've gotten to sing because now they're famous. We know professional athletes who've gotten to go do both of those things because when you have that kind of clout, you can go do those other things. And so the reason it's so important, find some focus and prove to people that you can perform at a high level because when we're hiring people, that's generally what we're looking at. We're looking at whether or not you did something at a really high level. You won a state championship in golf. Like That's going to be something you're going to talk about in interviews and they're going to talk. Well, it's going to come up a lot. Right, because it means that you have the drive and the passion and the commitment, right, to just get through the entire process and come out the other end a winner, right. So you've basically been late, no pressure. You've been labeled a winner, right, and people are going to expect you to keep looking up to that. Uh, and that's why, like, doesn't mean you're going to be a pro golfer. You might, you might not. But whether or not you become a pro golfer, the fact that you want to stay championship is something that people are going to look at and go, "Oh, this kid's got what it takes." And we see that a lot. So I just read a story yesterday. We got, you know, Nike Air, which are Nikes that you can see into the shoe on in the sole? Yes, I do. Nike had a design competition because they're like, what do we do? Nike just had the movie Air, which is funny. This is totally unrelated. They had a design competition trying to be like, ah, we got to come up with something new. And this guy entered the design. He's an architect. And he's like, well, in France, they have something we call it reflexive design in, in the film business. But like... Meaning if you could see what, if the thing is showing you what it is, like if I walk into a building and I can see the duct work and I can see like the stuff that we usually put behind a wall, it's called, the expression is it's showing you what it is, right? And he's like, if I can make an inside out building, which they call those, I'll make an inside out shoe. And so he introduces the shoe and they basically said, hey, congratulations, you won, you work for Nike now. He's like, what now? And this guy, Nike, the, the, this line of shoes became one of their most successful products in history. This guy was an architect. He had zero experience in shoe design, right? But he took that perspective and translated it. So that happens so much more than you think. Like, if you look at Ford, do you know how Ford invented the Model T? The Model T is? So the, the first I, mass produced car in America was the Model T. Right, right. Was it? I mean, I was reading about this in Thinking Grow Rich, I think, by Napoleon mm-hmm. Hill. But he talked about how he wanted to come up with an idea that for... Uh, like a horse and carriage but without the horses yeah i don't know is that right it is it's absolutely correct the the way of getting it done so producing a car was one thing producing a car at scale was another so the assembly line is considered ford's greatest innovation and the way that ford came up with the assembly line i don't know if i talked about that book or not i don't remember is he went to the number one industry at the time which was meatpacking and nobody in meatpacking felt any sense of competition this guy asking about making cars like whatever crazy dude like he's asking questions and he basically realized oh if you can take pigs and make pork chops you could probably if it's mechanical you could reverse the process effectively taking pork chops and making pigs right it's the same process we're just going to start end with the complete product instead of ending with the pieces and that was the breakthrough innovation, the breakthrough innovation that, that we owe our automobile industry to was Ambient Link Wayne invented. If you just took that and turned it around, you'd have something totally dead. In your opinion, what are the essential qualities and skills that contribute to success in any field or industry? Angela Duckworth writes about grit, starts with grit a lot. I agree. I don't disagree with that at all. I think maybe it's a little bit misunderstood like what grit is exactly. But I mean, there's really no question that most people just quit or right? like at some point 
those who are like, ah, this isn't working. I wanted it to work faster. Our school system kind of says like, you work for a finite amount of time and then you take the test and you get the grade. And then like, and that the world doesn't work that way. So if you spend your whole life like learning how to work in this education system that we have, and then you try entrepreneurship, it really blindsides you because it just doesn't work that way at all, right? You don't get back clear answers on whether or not you're doing the right thing, right? You don't normally gives you a, a meaningful grade in any way. It's kind of what we're trying to do with these accelerator programs is to help you at least understand like where you at, where where you are at, and how you are performing, so that you can adjust on the fly. So, if I was going to say the number one factor of success, I think it really comes down to your ability to pick a thing, right? Again, it, we could get into we could argue your definition of success, but your ability. To say, I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to do it for this amount of time, see if it works, and then adjust accordingly. So it does take grit, but at the same time, you can keep doing something you shouldn't do for too long as well. I spent about two years just traveling around to colleges throughout Texas, speaking to college students, some of whom were about to graduate, some of whom had already graduated, some of whom had master's degrees, and they were almost all asking me how to get internships. And so when somebody comes to me with a master's degree and is asking me, how do I get an internship? I'm like, I really wish that we could go back five to seven years and have this conversation. The most important thing you need to focus on right now is figuring out, honestly, what you love to do, right? So there's a book out there called Good to Great, Fair Warning. I quote a ton of books, and I apologize. But there's a handful that have really stood out of the probably 150 business books that I've kind of been through. And what you find is this most importantly, the same themes pop up in book after book after book after book after book, which is a little bit obviously redundant on one hand. On the other hand, they like, well, there must be some truth to this, right? So if, if 15 or 20 people all came to the same conclusion independently, probably something we should really think about. And I think what was most shocking to me, so I tried to read Good to Great. I really couldn't get through it the first time. And then I ended up, somebody gave me an audio version, which I was able to listen to. It was hard to just sit down a cranky book. I think it was the first book I ever listened to. And he has in there something he calls the hedgehog concept, which is like a simpler version of the Ikigai concept. And so the hedgehog concept is like a hedgehog is a pretty simple animal, right? It makes its way in the world by curling up on a ball and poking things in the mouth to try to eat it. That's really its only trick, but this trick works really, really well. The hedgehog. And so what he said, which is mirrored in E-Myth by, by Michael Gerber, and is there's a book by the founder of Color Williams here called The One Thing, is that the idea that there's one thing you can do that will make everything else easier or unnecessary in life, in jobs, right? And it's there's always there's one thing in any particular situation, so it's not one magical button. When you're in a company, the hardest thing to get a company to do, and I've now, like Paul, consulted tons and tons and tons of companies, and it's true for our own companies as well, is getting them to pick, like, what's our one thing that makes the most sense? And so the Venn diagram that Collins put in, in good to great, is what will drive your economic engine? What will people pay you to do? What can you be the best in the world at? And what do you love to do? The intersection of those three things, key posits is really where companies really make it or break it, right? And so figuring out what you love to do is like the one thing you can definitely do right now. You don't know what you're great at yet, probably, right? 
And even if you do, like, and if you're, even if you're an athlete, you talk to a lot of professional athletes that, like, there's a half life on that. By the time you're in your 30s tops, you're now looking at a new career. Hopefully, you banked enough money, but most of it did, right? Because you spend it all when you become a pro athlete, because all your other pro athlete friends have, have nice cars and five houses, right? So, figuring out what you love to do is step one, and then figuring out, like, and this is really critical, like, well, okay. People, I really love crochet. Are people going to pay me to do it? Maybe. I joke, but it's true. Look, somewhere in the world is the world's foremost expert on Smurfs, right? They've got like, are you old enough to know what a Smurf is? So there's a ridiculously somewhere, and this is like, you would look it up. There's like people who have like houses full of Smurfs, like there's still Smurf conventions. Like we happen to live in a world where you can connect with all kinds of people who love whatever it is you're into. There's probably people out there who love it. There's probably... A meaningful job but let's like start making a list of things you really like to do i would focus less on industry and more on like stuff that i get like engaged in and so what you know as a golfer especially as someone who's one state congratulations is what it means to be in flow right you understand what it means to be in a mode where you're not thinking about it like you're not worried about the stroke you're not worried you just you're just doing it and it feels effortless right like it's probably the greatest feeling. Like people will spend their entire life chasing that feeling. It's one of the things that athletes struggle with is like when you've had that moment, it's so addictive. You will always chase that. That's why people who suck at golf will play golf their whole lives. Right. So if you look at human behavior, if you look at econ behavioral economics, which is I studied psychology, I got into marketing, and then it took me a really long time, way longer than you've been alive to figure out that it's just behavioral economics, right? The study of what motivates humans to do what they do, right? And being in flow is one of the most motivating things in the whole wide world. So Tony Shea, who, who passed a few years ago, but he was the founder of Zappos, a company that made a billion dollars selling shoes online when nobody was selling shoes online. He wrote a book called Delivering Happiness. And he said that there are three different types of pleasure that really drive human behavior, right? I'm sorry, three different types of happiness throughout human behavior. The first one being pleasure, right? Like, so, like, we will eat things that make us happy all day long. It's what a lot of, most people, if they don't know, if they can't find these other kinds of pleasure, they go and eat too much or do something else that's indulgent, right? So, a pleasure being the, like the lowest and most basic level of happiness. If you're having a bad day, you'll probably find yourself eating something you should because it makes you feel better, right? performance is a much more lasting level of happiness, right? So it's going to sift with you. You're going to have a residual feeling. Like after you have an incredible golf game, right? You probably don't feel better just that day. You probably, you can ride that high for like a couple of days, right? Depending on how big the win is, maybe for quite a while. Was it the highest level of happiness that humans can achieve though is interdependent and its purpose, right? Is this idea of finding the thing that we really like, what I do matters and it's meaningful, and that's where you're going to find, ultimately, hopefully, your, your calling, right? So if you look at Ikigai, again, which is the more complicated version of, of Colin's chart is, and they add in basically, basically what I can get paid to do, what I love to do, what I can be the best at, and what the world needs, right? So finding that intersection is kind of the whole game. And that's what most of us spend most of our lives doing. So when you find people who get obsessed with just like building a bank account, uh, you know, I have friends, I got like the one friend in college who probably coming out of college had already saved a million dollars. Like he was just obsessed with the size of that bank account. Pretty miserable, but we had lots of money. He was happy when 
the money was going into the account because that was a form of performance. Putting money in his account was performing. But whenever he stopped doing it or he stopped to like sort of reflect on his life, he was really miserable. And so I've had, I came from very humble beginnings. I used to live in a cabin in the woods. And then I went to USC and I've had a lot of very wealthy friends. And I've found that like people across the spectrum are equally miserable when they don't know the point of what they're doing, right? There's way more stories there that I won't share them more right now. So Mr. O'Brien talked about how 90% of entrepreneurs fail, right? And in media tech ventures tries to make that risk significantly less. But failure and setbacks occur to the majority of entrepreneurs still and everyone in their lives. So how do you approach failures and setbacks and what advice would you give to individuals who are facing challenging moments in their lives? I'm guessing he said the same thing, right? But like, it's only a failure if you didn't learn, right? It's failing is a part of the process, right? So wisdom comes from experience. Experience comes from failure. The only caveat I'll add to that is the failure doesn't have to be your own. That's why I read so many books, right? People will, the best authors are going to write really honestly about the things that they tried to do and failed. They're going to write about things other people tried to do and failed, right? So gather up as much information as you can and then figure out what you, what to apply and not to apply. I mean, one of the problems with reading too many books is it does get a bit convoluted. You're like, well, which of these things apply to me? Um, which I recommend Simon Sinek's salary test, which is in this book, start with why. One of the few things that's not in this TED talk, but it is in the book. There are good reasons to fail and there are bad reasons to fail. So you have a company, you just opened a restaurant. It was a global pandemic and there was no customers because no one was allowed to go out. It's not your fault. There's no way you could have done that, right? So understanding the difference between things like environmental factors and operational factors, like you are responsible for choosing your unique value proposition. This is the thing that I'm going to do to make the world better. So when I coach companies in any pitch competition of any kind, the three questions which I got from an investor in town named Sam Decker is, how am I going to change the world? All right. How am I going to make money doing that? And do I have a team that can pull it off? Those are the only three questions. And almost every single company that I've ever coached using those three questions, almost every single one has won the competition network. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. It is so ridiculously simple when you strip away all the nonsense, right? Those are the three questions that matter. How are you going to change the world? How are you going to make money in that process? And do you have a team that can pull it off? There are going to be things outside of those factors. Right? So if you fail because you don't know how you're going to change the world or you don't know how you're going to make money or you didn't put together the right team, that's on you. Right? That was, that, that's your job. And it's also your job to recognize, like, I have no idea to put together a team. Fine. Go find somebody who does. I have no idea how I'm going to make money. Fine. Go find somebody who does. Right. But as an entrepreneur, you're always starting by asking the question, how am I going to change the world? Right. That's your first and foremost job is to be clear on answering the question, how am I going to change the world? And then you can find people to help you with those other two pieces. But you should not fail because you can't answer those three questions. If you fail for other reasons, sometimes that's going to happen, but you're not going to see nearly a 90% failure rate on people who can answer those three questions. In your opinion, what are some overlooked or under- underestimated qualities that can make a significant difference in the career trajectory of professionals? All right, like go out there, be curious, ask tons of questions. Like if somebody's doing something that looks remotely interesting to you, reach out to them and find out. I read upstream and I went, dude, I have to talk. 
I've got to reach out to Dan Heath, right? Like, I can't tell you how many authors I've reached out to him, but, and listen, I, I, have I have talked to you. John Spolstra wrote maybe the best marketing book of all time called Marketing Outrageously. He used to be the head coach of the New Jersey Nets and the Portland Trailblazers. His son, Eric Spolstra, head coach of the Miami Heat. And I read his book, Marketing Outrageously, and I sent him an email. I found his email. I sent him an email. I'm like, I have questions. Like, this book just blew my mind. And he said, sure, no problem. Let's talk. We jumped on the phone. Like, again, I worked in Hollywood for years. I've met countless celebrities. I've never cared. I talked to John Spolstra for 20 minutes. I was going to give a talk myself right after that. And I was like, giddy. I was like, I just talked to John Spolstra. Holy crap. It was really the first time I've been like, starstruck. And I've talked to John on several occasions since, including when he came to speak in Austin. And I got to get up on stage and introduce him, right? Like, I just read the book and I reached out to the dude. Like, you're already doing a lot of what I'm talking about, and which is just like, all right, find people, ask questions. Like, people are going to be impressed. You're probably going to get offered an internship somewhere. Like, as long as you really, the only thing, the only, I could probably recommend four internships for you right now if you just said to me, I think I'm interested in X. Whatever X is, it wouldn't matter. I'd be like, okay, fine. You talk so and so, so and so, or so and so. Like, that's the most important thing is be curious and don't be afraid to talk to people. Like, the thing about industries, businesses, and the entertainment industry is the worst. But, like, all this idea that, like, some people are untouchable, you're not supposed to talk to them is just ridiculous. They're just people. Like, that's it. That's all we have on the planet. They're just people. There's no people that are more important people than other people. Like that's just stuff we made up, right? Just find them and talk to that. And most of them, I can't tell you the number of celebrities that I've just had like really like long drawn out conversations with because they're like, no one talks to me like a human being. Everyone wants an autograph or they're like, how did you get famous? And like, I'm so tired of that conversation. But if you're like, hey, what keeps you up at night? I'm like, oh my God, let me tell you. My dog just died. Yeah. And that circles back to what we were talking about with Andrew Carnegie's book. I mean, just being genuine and asking questions is one of the best ways to get ahead. So how do you encourage and foster a mindset of continuous learning and growth for yourself and with the professionals you work with? I'll be honest with you. So like I work at ACC, my boss is Don Tracy. Don Tracy is finishing his PhD in adult education. He's the one who taught me about the difference between andragogy, pedagogy, pedagogy. Like, like he is a world-class expert in learning. He just recently came back from the Cork Learning Festival, the Learning Festival, Learning Cities Festival in Cork, Ireland, and is working to make, we don't have a designated learning city in the United States of America, and he's working very hard to make Austin the first global designated learning city in the United States of America. There are people who spend their lives committed to answer that question. I don't actually have a good answer. I I want people to be curious. I tell people to read books, but I don't know how to get them to want to, to be totally honest with you. I can't tell you how many people who like, I don't know what to do about this. Like, I don't know how to pitch this. I, I just don't know how to have this conversation. Like, I don't know how to get these people to give me $100,000. I'm like, have you read, have you read Fitch Anything by Warren Flack? Have you read Flip the Script by, also by Warren Flack? Have you read Never Split the Difference by Chris, Bo- Chris Loss? Like, these books all have unbelievably good answers. Go read that. Do they read? They don't read them. This, I see them four months later and they're still like, I just don't know what to do. Like, I, 
I, I don't know how to fix that, honestly. So just to wrap up with one last question that I ask in every interview, what would your one piece of advice be for anyone in any area of field to find purpose and meaning in their life or just, or just success in general, actually, that's probably a better question. I'm going to disagree with you. I think this question was a better question because meaning is meaning for most people, you're going to find the most meaningful success in, in like it sounds redundant and meaning in that sense of purpose. And so again, you can go be really good at a lot of things like stock trading, make a bunch of money and then be miserable. But like, unless you're the type of person who just really, really, really likes money, which is not just a lot. But for the most, for the rest of us, you can generally break down causes, like things, like the big problems worth solving into three categories. And so generally in the philanthropic world, we break it down into people, planet, and animals. So let's just start there, right? Like, of those things, what do you care the most about, right? Do you care about, like, creating a, a better world, meaning an ecosystem, like, like saving the planet that we live on? Or if you think the planet's going to be fine, then, like, do you care about solving human problems? Do you care about solving animal problems? And I think that there are things that people do that I think are absurd, but someone out there is focused on saving an endangered species of worm. And, okay, like, if that's what you want to do, I, I like, go, go for it, right? Like, I think it, it will quite likely turn out that somebody doing something like that will have a, like, an absolute, will, like, identify some rna strand that will cure cancer right like like whatever it is that you're drawn to that you're driven to do explore that and see if there's a good a good business there right like unless you want to go start a non-profit which is also an option but um if you're a people person which i'm gonna just go on a limb and say you're a people person and then start trying to figure out of the things that people struggle with what's the most interesting to you right if you're going to start a business, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, which you may or may not, like, or if you're going to go work for a company, like, which problem is the most, which problem do you feel like you could be really excited about solving? And if you solve a problem and you're really good at it and decide, I want to solve a different problem, that's fine, by the way. Like, you could have 20 careers, like I have, but you're my age. Or you could have one because you found the problem that you love to solve the most. And so just pick a problem that you feel like could be really fun to solve, get after it see how it goes and then adjust accordingly well those are all the questions i have thank you so much for your time i really appreciate this conversation you're very welcome thank you for joining us today if you enjoyed the show don't forget to subscribe to stay updated for future episodes my name is charlie hubbard and this has been professional profiles